Welcome to the Help One Child podcast. This is the show that equips adoptive and foster parents with information from experts in the fields of trauma and attachment. Our hope is that with every episode, you will find helpful insights and practical parenting tips. My name is Kristen Wynn Reyes, and I am your host today as we cover the topic of how to help your child develop positive habits that will increase their well-being and yours as well. Our guest today is Donna Erickson. As a child, Donna spent time in foster care herself and has spent the last 30 years educating foster parents. Donna, we are so glad you are here today. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Kristen, for having me. As you work with adoptive and foster parents, what do you think are some of the foundational aspects for them to start with to help their adopted or foster child to develop positive habits? Good question, Kristen. But the most important is that the parents be an example for the child. If parents have good habits and practice them regularly and the child observes them, that is the key foundation. Modeling behaviors and sometimes fabricating situations to show the child how to develop a positive habit uh, is equally important. Um, Along with that, I guess we probably should talk about what habits parents might want their kids to develop. That would be helpful, yes. That would be helpful. Okay. I think, first of all, politeness and manners. Child saying, please, thank you, you're welcome. Um, Table manners for a child to have table manners in home and out in public. Language, using appropriate language, acceptable language, and sharing, uh, homework, picking up, good hygiene, um, maybe offering help to others, and being able to wait, um, which we call delayed gratification, uh, might be another one. And then, of course, with behavioral issues, I think parents want their children to develop uh, good positive habits around aggressive behavior and and other areas of uh, play with siblings and peers. Thank you. And if a child is just placed for foster care or adoption, what are the top three habits or behaviors you might suggest we work on so we don't overwhelm the child with trying to fix or learn everything at once? This this is touchy and depends on the age of the child, of course, um, with little ones, and also it's going to depend if there are other children in the home at the time. So if you have other children in your home and you're taking a new child, I think the first thing I would have parents do is think about the rules and the expectations they have and establish that with the existing children first so that those children don't feel all of a sudden, you know, little Johnny comes in and now we've got all these new rules. So that I think would be critical. If there's no other child in the home and the child is placed with you. I think having simple rules and not too many because we're going to build on them as we go. Ask questions of the child, what they like, what they've done, kind of get a feel for how much experience they've had uh, with things and then uh, giving them choices. So this was going to be important to let them feel that they have some control and some power over their uh, existence in your home but make them simple. It's not, do you want to go to bed or you don't want to go to bed, but it might be, do you want to take this toy to bed or have this book in bed so that they're both equally acceptable to the parents? Those would probably be the the top three. You're definitely going to have boundaries um, in, in the house about things, but those I would make very simple 
And of course, I'm really big on having charts and pictures and posters, which I call reminders. Uh, They're not threats, they're not warnings, but reminders for the child so that they can see maybe what they're to do next or kind of what the family routine is. And I wouldn't get too stressed if they kind of fall off on the wayside here a bit in the beginning. It takes a while for them to get used to any new environment, which we call transitions. Right. And could you speak more then to supporting children through transitions and what some of the major transitions in a day might look like? I think this is another great question because transitions are typical for us as adults and we just don't think about them. We come home from work and we start dinner or we get up and we just do things and we don't think about transitioning. Whereas for children, this, if their mind is in one place, their body doesn't want to necessarily be there. (laughs) And it's very hard to motivate them sometimes and get them going. So I think giving child a bit more time with transitions is going to be critical and to let them know what to expect. So getting up in the morning, um, if it's a matter of we have to get up and get dressed and get into the kitchen for breakfast, we might have little reminders for that. Uh, Maybe put a little chart up or have a picture, which I'm very big on with children. Uh, Picture success with a success picture, I call it, which means you take a picture of the child doing what they should be doing as a success and put it on the door, put it on the refrigerator. So it's a reminder to the child that this is what they're supposed to do. And in transitioning and say, remember, it's going to be 10 minutes or we have 15 minutes. And if you put those up on a door or a reminder chart, have a clock. Some I don't know if parents have seen the time timer clock, which can be purchased from timetimer.com. And it's a little clock that will turn and give a child up to an hour of visual with a red dial. And as the time goes down, the red disappears. And it's a great help for a child who doesn't really respect time, I would say, uh, but they really don't know time. And I think that would be a, a real help for them in transitioning morning, evening, after school, uh, transitioning to coming home. They might be allowed playtime or time to be outdoors if they want. Coming in, this gets to be tough. And you can call and call and call, and sometimes children won't listen and they won't come. So rather than saying, you get in here right now, I've called you three times for dinner, I think reframing how the parents say that and saying, dinner will be in 10 minutes, you can play until then. And then give them another little you know, reminder, making it more positive rather than negative. It's sort of like a a drudge. I mean, I say this very much with chores. Uh, When the chores become really negative to a child, they're not going to be motivated and want to do them. So with little kids, if they've got all their toys on the floor and you want them to pick up, I encourage parents to say, let me help you pick these up. And you get down on the floor and you say, I'm going to get all the red Legos. And before you know it, they might be down there saying, well, I'll get the blue ones. Um, But it changes the behavior of the activity from a negative one to maybe one that's a little more fun. And that's another help in transitions. Bedtime, always a difficult transition. And again, here choices can be helpful to say, um, what you would like to do, your story before or after you brush your teeth, a little power in that 
would you like to wear these pajamas or these pajamas? And I like to make them really mixed matched and silly. And then the other ones that are typical because they look at the two and their brain is now contemplating how come the bottoms don't match the tops of these and how come these only have one sock. And it does help them to make the decision a little bit. It's an easier transition, I think, for parents. Um, and then I think other transitions, just reminding the child how much time they have and what's going to occur next. Okay. And what about screen time? So that can be a really tricky transition for adults and children, as we're observing in our culture. Uh, it can be really addictive. And so if the child does use screen time for homework or for downtime, how would you suggest developing habits around that? Okay, screen time. It is difficult. We are in our first generation of addiction to screen time and to social media and to gaming. And you did make a very important comment in that saying parents as well. And if children see parents on their phones, on a pad, on the computer all the time, it just validates for them that that's the thing to do. So I think parents are going to have to maybe curb their own screen time a little bit as one, as I said, setting the example for your child. I think here you have to have someone else be the moderator. You can't be the one constantly telling them, you've got to put that down, got to get off. I would set a timer. I would have the time timer. Um, if the house is hooked up with Google and Alexa, I know she's doing more parenting today than some parents are. And um, she's a good reminder and she's pretty forceful when she says, you know, 10 minutes is up or 15 minutes is up. That might be a help as well. But here, I think the only suggestion I can give is making a reward before the pain right? Reward before the pain. The pain is having to do homework. The pain is having to sit down at the table and be quiet. The pain is having to take a bath or brush their teeth. So let's talk about the pleasure first and say, oh, as soon as we brush our teeth, we're going to, and then we have our story. Or as soon as we finish our homework, we're going to watch TV. Or even better to say, uh, feel free to watch TV as soon as you finish your homework. So we put the reward out there first, and we want the child to hear that. We don't want to hear it so much as a negative. I don't know what the next 10, 20 years are going to show as far as screen time. I don't think we ever thought that children would be playing with a little device rather than playing with another child, and yet they do it, and they talk to their friends and play games on their computers and and my daughter says, well, they're interacting. He's talking to his friends on the, with the headset. And I think that's interesting. And I, I do believe we're going to have to recognize this is 21st century. And it's not going to go away. But if we can limit it and offer some other activities that are fun, enriching, physically active, healthy. But parents have to be willing to do those too. I don't think you can just say to the child, go out and play. But if you say, hey, come on, let's go for a bike ride, and you do it with them, again, modeling and setting that example, you might have a little more success. Thank you. Could you speak to some examples um, that you might be able to share of foster or adopted children developing positive habits and how that 
helped them experience some healing in their life? Is there a relationship between positive habits and healing? Well, I can speak for myself because in foster care, I learned some wonderful positive things from my parents. And I would guarantee that has helped me throughout my life. And I do think for children who feel kind of helpless and maybe even to the point of hopeless when they come into care, they don't have a whole lot to look forward. And positive habits that are experienced personally and then are recognized by others are huge. And when a child does something, I think it's critical that the parent give a response to that. Not the child, but to the behavior, which if there are teachers listening, they're going to know what specific criterion-based feedback is because that's done in the classroom. And it means you're looking at what the child did, not who they are. So just saying simple things, wow, you really got that. Good job. Oh, you worked so hard at that. Aren't you proud of yourself? Look at what you did. These are the things that are going to help encourage and motivate more and will also help that child to start feeling good about themselves without it being junky or phony praise. Because junky, phony praise, as Dr. Stephen Glenn told us many years ago, was like a hot air balloon. And if you keep giving that child this, this hot air, you're so great, you're so wonderful, you're so terrific, and the child doesn't feel it inside, he said that hot air balloon is going to have a predictable crash when they don't get it. So don't praise the child, but praise the effort. And I feel the best way to motivate a child is to acknowledge their efforts, not necessarily their achievements. And I know you're a believer in growth mindset. Could you speak more to what growth mindset is and any tools that parents could use to help teach their children to live through growth mindset and not fixed mindset? Excellent question, because Dr. Carol Dweck has given us some wonderful tools for parents to use with growth mindset. And if you have just a, a simple explanation, it is that the child hasn't got it yet mean the child hasn't learned it yet, the child can't do it yet, but they're working toward a goal and they're working toward a positive outcome. That's what growth mindset is. It's a positive movement forward versus a fixed mindset, which is where the child, and I will say many children coming into care, are going to demonstrate, I can't do it, I don't know it, I'm too stupid, um, the teacher hates me, I'm not good at sports, nobody wants to play with me. These are all fixed mindset things that will not encourage a child to move toward positive habits or to even have that child feel good about themselves. So anything parents can grab a hold of with growth mindset um, is going to be extremely helpful and also using dialogue with the child that is going to promote a positive growth mindset. Well, honey, you work really hard on that. I know you don't have it yet, but you're going to get it is a great way to start helping that child. Thank you. And so you're, would you suggest process instead of end product? Absolutely. The end product is the reward in and of itself. And we know that the child studies really hard and they get an A, but that might be where you say to the child, oh, you studied so hard. And that, you know, the effort that you put in really shows your grade. And that is the issue, not so much the outcome, which is the A. Now, they might come home with a D or, or an F, and there again, you might say, well, honey, you know, that might mean that, you know, you didn't put in quite as much as you could have, and you didn't get it just yet. 
Thank you. Mm-hmm. What are some other helpful tools or resources that you would recommend to parents who are working with their adoptive or foster children on establishing healthy and helpful, positive habits? I think one of the first ones is to start very small and not have huge expectations that we're going to change their language, their table manners, their you know academic success all at the same time. I would pick one very simple and I would pick one that you think you're going to have success with. When a child is able to achieve success in one area, it acts like a building stone to move on to other things. So pick something, work with it, be willing to be patient with it, and as they do make achievements and can be successful, acknowledge that along the way. Uh, Latest book um, by James Clear, which is called Atomic Habits, talks about starting very, very small, minimal ha- habit, minimal things to help them build. <laughs> Excuse me. And then after that, we move on. So just, he says, 1% a day is all you have to achieve to move toward positive growth and positive habits. I also think parents sometimes worry a little bit about... Excuse me about changing the negative habits. And I don't think I would worry about that as much as I would worry about just creating some new positive habits. And eventually, the more positive habits that come into the child's life, the easier it's going to be to drop off some of the negative things because all we're going to be acknowledging are the positives. And I don't think it hurts to ignore some of the negative things kids are doing. We know sometimes these negative behaviors come out just to get us or to get attention, which is inappropriate attention, or maybe out because they're angry. But if we start ignoring those a little bit and work much more toward the positives, I think you'll see that the child will feel better about themselves and be more motivated to work in a positive direction. And I know you have some really helpful ideas about aggressive behavior for children, how to shift that into more of a positive, some creative ideas. Could you speak to that if parents are struggling with Fighting, hitting, kicking, any of those aggressive behaviors toward them them or other children? Yes, these are toward younger children, of course. I mean, it's not something that will probably be effective with a teenager. But when you have little kids, especially little ones that like to slap you in the face to get your attention, and it will get your attention, I promise you, because you get big eyebrows and you will make eye contact with the child. And these are things that I think can be easily deterred. If you can stay calm, don't raise any voices, and try to immediately redirect that behavior. So the thought process with this is we're not going to necessarily change a negative to a positive overnight with this. But if the child were going to slap me, I would grab the child's hand. And if he was headed for my face, I would take his hand, stroke my face, and say, nice mommy, nice mommy. And then take my hand and do it back to him. So my hand is directing his hand now and saying, nice baby or nice Billy, whatever, to redirect that so that I'm giving credit to a positive behavior. I'm not bringing any attention, saying, don't slap mommy, that hurts me, you know you shouldn't do that, I've told you before. That doesn't connect. But by redirecting the behavior, what you actually do, you inadvertently reinforce a negative behavior. And by redirecting it, you're now turning a negative into a positive in a sense. It's not concrete yet, but if we do that enough times, I think you're going to see that child will come up and stroke your face as nice mommy, nice mommy, and then you acknowledge it and say yes, and 
nice feely, nice feely. You go back and do it to the child. We can't always get into that positive realm. Sometimes we just have to stop it. And that says we take a negative to neutral. So we just need to get out of the way or we need to just hold their hand or sit them down. There are times when you may have to just do that to, to stop the behavior. But I think that has been my most creative way and has been my most successful way that parents have reported has worked for them. Wonderful. Thank you. Do you have any parting thoughts or parenting tips for us on this topic of helping our children to develop positive habits that you haven't shared yet? Well, I think that one of my favorite one-liners is that what's familiar is preferred. And if children come from backgrounds where things are not really healthy, that is familiar to them, and they will prefer that. I think parents have to be comfortable with the process of being very, very patient and having some of these things to turn into positive behaviors and that the child will think positively about themselves. It's sometimes a long struggle. Some children get it easier and quicker, and others, it, it may take a bit longer. So I think patience is going to be a big thing for the parents. Um, boundaries are going to be critical. Children have to have boundaries. They have to have limits. Uh, they need them. Um, they may not like them, but they definitely need them. And I think acknowledging those also, I'm sorry, honey, but in this house, we do this. Um, I, I'm sorry, but the policeman says everybody in the car has to wear their car seat and their seat belts got to be hooked up. And that's just the way it is. So I think those boundaries are going to have to be explained to the child and just made as a matter of fact, this is what we have to do. And again, parents have to be that model and have to be willing to demonstrate um, positive and appropriate behaviors. Donna, what are some specific examples of what is familiar being preferred as we think of our children? Good question. Also, because when we see children in unhealthy environments, these things have become habituated. So they get used to screaming, yelling, things being thrown, maybe domestic violence. Uh, they may not have appropriate living standards for them, maybe no place to sleep, maybe inadequate food sources. So to the child, that is going to be what is comfortable for them, and they will be more likely to prefer that. A child now comes into your home, and you want to provide healthy meals for them. You expect them to sleep in a bed under covers, and you expect them to say please and thank you. And really, that is not the environment they've come from. So what's familiar to them is going to be people who are yelling, people who don't feed them. We have many children who don't use utensils, or certainly not appropriately. They use them for other things like weapons. And these we have to consider are where the child has come from. So to change these behaviors, parents need to make a real concerted effort to demonstrate how we do things. I've had some families tell me that the child would not sit at the table, so they decided to get a crumb rug. And they went to Home Depot and got a little floor sample, you know, a little square that's like a two by three, and they put them on the floor and they said, we'll sit on the crumb rug and we'll eat down here. The child loved it, sat on the floor and ate, and gradually they moved it closer and closer to the table and eventually put the crumb rug on the chair. Uh, they were willing to make that effort to change what was familiar to that child to make it something that the child would prefer. 
It has to do with language. It has to do with social behaviors. It has to do with their bedtime routines, their bathroom, everything. Everything for a child could already be programmed for them as a preferred method. And again, we have to be very patient and willing to demonstrate and also talk about, explain to the child why we're doing these things and why it's important and how fun it is for you to do it. Children who don't brush their teeth is always a, an issue and with little ones. And I tell the parents, you know, you should go in the bathroom and have a toothbrushing party. And you go in, you don't invite the child. You guys go in and you laugh and you giggle and you brush your teeth and mommy brushes daddy's teeth and daddy brushes mommy's teeth. Oh, and it's so much fun. Before you know it, you got a couple little ones wanting to come in and be in the toothbrushing party because you have demonstrated it in a new and different way and it's acceptable to the child and hopefully that will turn into some healthy oral hygiene. <laughs> Wonderful. That's a great example. Um, before you work with your child, work with yourself is the advice you often give. Could you speak more to that and how we could work on ourselves as parents and what are the most important habits or things to model to our children? Well, obviously, it's going to be important for parents to be healthy themselves before they can expect healthy children. And that means individually as well as maybe couples, if it's a couple raising a child, because you most likely should be on the same page. Um, consistency in parenting is very difficult. I remember Dr. Barry Brazelton saying, consistency with the toddler, it's impossible. Give it up. There's no such thing as consistency. And then he would say, well, pick the important things. Like if bedtime is important to you or mealtime, just just have consistency with one, one or two things. And that I think is great advice. So working on yourself says, keep yourself healthy. If you get enough sleep, you have enough exercise, maybe your diet's okay. If not, you might need to put a little more effort on taking care of yourself. And then also try to work on a compromise. If you don't agree on what you should do with the child and there's two parents, you might have to make an agreement to say, well, let's try this. We'll give it so much time. And if it doesn't work, we'll try something else. I think children very often can sense tension between adults. I have a wonderful example of a little toddler who'd gotten an indoor slide for a Christmas gift and she would climb up on the slide dance on the top of it and it just terrified her mother because she said she could fall off and she could break her arm or break her leg and she was just worried to death and she says the slide's got to go the dad says no no leave it there because it's got to learn she's got to learn how to do it and they were at such odds with this that the child would not sit down and slide down appropriately on the slide. So the compromise that they came to was that they would try dad's way and let her have her time on the slide. He would supervise her. And if she didn't learn how to go down the slide in the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, they would take it out and put it in the garage until she was older. Well, I always ask parents, what do you think happened? What do you think happened, Kristen? I'm guessing that she learned how to go down the slide. She did. And how long do you think it took her? Probably about five minutes with the dad interacting. That's with her. exactly correct. Because there was no more tension between mom and dad. She did not sense that. And she got up there and she giggled and she sat down and they applauded her. And that was that. So once the child doesn't sense that there's anything going on between the adults and both parents are in agreement with what will happen, I can pretty much guarantee a better behavior out of the child. 
Now, if it's a single parent home, uh, it's all on you. <laughs> so I think sometimes maybe it's easier. They don't have another parent they can go to. But I think then speaking to the child and saying, this is what we're doing and this is why we're doing it. And doing it with the child is going to give you your greatest success. And even sharing that process with the child of how you came to that agreement because the child sensed the tension previously, would that be important or no? In this case, it wasn't. She was too young um, and it wasn't. But yes, I think it would be an older child. You could definitely explain that to them. Okay. Thank you. And so what behaviors do parents need to model the most, do you think? Well, I think if it is a two-parent adult household, how the adults speak to each other is hugely critical. It has been shown in the research that it's not so much how a child was treated by an adult growing up that affects them, but how they saw adults relating to one another and how they treated one another. So having a good, healthy example of appropriateness in, again, language, in touch, in all aspects of interaction. If that child can feel comfortable that the adults are respecting each other and respecting their space and, and so on, I think you're going to see that the child will eventually realize there are different relationships and healthy relationships. Thank you. And could you speak about the cognitive triangle? I know the cognitive triangle is something you use often in your trainings. Yes, it is. And it is extremely helpful to uh, caregivers and parents. If you just Google the cognitive triangle, it will come up. Cognitive meaning mental, right? Cognitive in your brain as processing, functioning. And the triangle means it has three sides. And the cognitive triangle is basically made up of what you think, how you feel, and how you behave. And it's pretty simple because if you think you're dumb and you're stupid and you don't get it, you're going to feel probably dumb and stupid and like you don't get it. And then how will you behave? Not much motivation going on there. The triangle also works that how you feel can affect how you think. So if you're feeling sad and you're feeling down, then you're going to think that maybe you're bad and you're down and that can affect how you behave. So all three sides are equal and it is something that we can in our mind redirect. Uh, We can also look at this as stress as an adult. If we think that we are really stressed and it's bad for us, I got news for you, it'll be bad for you. But if you think of your stress as mm, a way to maybe motivate you to do something different, maybe the stress isn't so bad, I guarantee it won't be that bad for you. So mentally, we can control quite a bit in our life. Actually, and it has been proven that we have 40% control over things that we can change in our life. 50% might be genetically predisposed and 10% might be life or situational things. But you can change your perception of things. And usually perception is reality to the perceiver. So if you can change negative thinking into positive for yourself, this is an excellent example for your kids. And one that I just heard recently was a mom who took a cake out of her oven and uh, it didn't turn out too well. And instead of being upset and frustrated and talking about all the negative sides of that, she said, oh, well, that's all right. We could still eat it. I'm sure it still tastes good. Um, Next time, um, it'll probably come out better. This was a brilliant example to give to a child for them to see how something negative isn't really always that bad and can turn into positive. 
Thank you. And how do we guide our children to self-compassion instead of self-criticism? Oh, this is a tough one. Again, as adults, if we do this ourselves, we are setting a negative example for the children. So we've got to be aware that we don't do that. When a child says, I'm so stupid or I'm so dumb, I think it's very uh, tempting for the parent to say, no, you're not. You know, you're not stupid. You're not dumb. But I think sometimes just sitting down with that child and saying nothing and maybe just holding that child or sitting down and showing them something you know that they can do that they can sort of just don't bring attention to the self-criticism, but help to motivate them to feel a little bit better about themselves. Maybe making a silly face, maybe tickling them if they're young enough. And and that's appropriate because that isn't appropriate with all children, but doing something that can help that child feel that you recognize that they are valuable and worth something is going to be a helpful way to get them over self-criticism. And I don't know that saying, oh, that's not true, is going to really internally make that child feel. We have that cognitive triangle working. What they think is how they feel is how they behave. So in this case, I'm going to change the behavior. I'm going to do something for that child physically that will make them feel a little better so they will think a little better. And hopefully the triangle will work now in a positive way. Thank you for listening to the Help One Child podcast. We hope that you found helpful insights and practical parenting tips from your time with us. See you next time.